0: This is the Ag Queen podcast. This podcast explores the agriculture industry with the movers and shakers of those shaping it. Here's your
1: host, Lori Boyer. Today, I'm visiting with Chris Galen, Senior Vice President for Membership Services and Strategic Initiatives at the National Milk Producers Federation. Chris, thanks for joining me here on the show. First off...
0: Happy to be with you, Lori.
1: One of the things that has been coming up here in our coverage notes as a farm broadcaster is a this dispute, or maybe it's a second dispute settlement, and it's not quite a settlement yet, with Canada on um, the USMCA free trade agreement and a tariff rate quotas. So can we start there?
0: Sure. Yeah, well, the whole idea of having free trade with Canada and Mexico is that it allows Uh, a lot of the products we make in this country, particularly agricultural products, free access to the markets north and south of the border. And we basically have that to a large extent with Mexico, but we only have it to a tiny extent up in Canada. And it seems like um, with the USMCA and before that with NAFTA, Canada always finds a way to wiggle out of its commitments. They They will put Ink on paper and say, we will commit to allowing the U.S. to export X amount of dairy products. And then they find ways to really try to tighten the screws so that hardly anything gets exported there. And that has been the case now, even since 2020, when NAFTA was renegotiated and renamed as the U.S. Mexico Canada Agreement. So uh, back in 2021, now almost two years ago, we were able to get a dispute panel, which is designed to adjudicate disputes between the countries. If, if one of the countries doesn't feel like it's being treated fairly under the agreement, they can have a dispute panel basically like a court, hear, hear their case and rule either in favor of the complaint or not. Uh, we actually got a favorable ruling two years ago when we took Canada to court, as it were, with a dispute panel about access for our dairy products. Canada made some cosmetic changes in their program, their dairy program, but it didn't really result in any additional sales. And so now we've asked for a second dispute settlement panel. And this is the U.S. government going to Canada and saying, hey, you guys aren't abiding by the terms of the agreement. We want another dispute settlement panel to look at the the situation as it is now. So that's what happened here just recently, earlier in February, Lori. And uh, we're hoping that over the next six months or so, This dispute panel will look into our complaints and, again, find that Canada's system is not giving us the uh, export opportunities that we were promised.
1: When do you think we'll have some final settlement on that?
0: Well, like I say, it's probably a six-month process. And then the report, their findings are published, and then both countries can weigh in and react to it. And if Canada is found in violation, which we expect that it will, the U.S. then has the ability to retaliate, which basically would mean us choking off exports of products that Canada sends us, whether it's agricultural products or alcoholic products or lumber or you know the various things that they export to the U.S. Usually it doesn't come to that, Lori. Usually what happens is that changes are made with the offending system, which in this case is how Canada basically keeps its... Markets walled off for dairy products. They don't export much, and they don't import hardly anything. So we're hoping this that the situation changes. Again, there's been a long history of Canada just really not wanting competition from the U.S. They're afraid it will swamp them if given the opportunity. That's not what was negotiated. We weren't negotiating completely free and open trade in dairy products with Canada. We just want a little more of their market than what they've given us in the past. So that's what this fight is all
1: about. Chris, also recently, it looks like there's been some discussion and even movement legislative wise in a topic that you and I've talked about in the past, and that is how we name things specifically in the news we got. It was on cheeses, but dispute mm-hmm. on using things like the word Parmesan for sure. Parmesan cheese being from another country. If you want to recap that for us.
0: Sure. Sure. Yeah, this is an ongoing fight more than a decade where not Canada anymore, but the European Union, they want the ability to export more internationally. And they know that they're not going to necessarily compete on price. And even in in terms of quality, uh, a lot of cheeses made in the U.S. and other countries, Western countries are every bit the same, really, as European cheeses. So what they're now trying to do is to say, well, if certain Cheeses are made in Europe. Only the Europeans can use those cheese names. Uh, Parmesan is the classic example of this, but there are others: feta, Havarti. Uh, the latest one is Gruyere, and they're saying that only cheeses coming from countries where those those types of cheese originated can use it. Otherwise, uh, you'd be in violation of international uh, intellectual property laws. And and we say that that's bunk. Uh, that there's no reason why. Parmesan itself, which is a generic term, uh, has to only come from Italy, or feta, which is a very generic term and not even tied with any geography in Greece, can only be made in Greece because those are products that we make here in the U.S., but they're also made in other countries outside of Europe as well, not the U.S., but also not Europe. So uh, this is just an ongoing fight because it's one of the major trade strategies that Europe is using to choke off competition. Like we were talking about a minute ago, Canada uses its tariffs to choke off competition from U.S. exporters. Here, the Europeans are using these common food names and trying to restrict those names to choke off exports from the U.S. And importantly, what they've done is they've negotiated this geographic indications restrictions in deals that Europe has with say South Korea, which is an important market for the US as well and they're negotiating it with Mexico, which is a hugely important market for the US. So it's not even so much that it's an issue within the borders of the US and what people see when they go shopping at Walmart or Costco or, or Kroger or places like that. it's if we're going to have business and do business with with commercial customers in places like South Korea, We have to now confront these geographic indication restrictions. And so that's a huge fight. And it's not just cheese. It's other products. It could be wine. It could be meat products. Uh, It's a whole broad-based strategy that Europe's using. Cheese is just the most obvious example.
1: Chris, what else are you working on there at National Milk?
0: Well, what's in a name? Let's shift a little bit because one of the other things that we are expecting to become public here in February is the... Food and Drug Administration is going to be releasing a guidance, which is basically a a proposal. It's not a hard-passed law, but it's a guidance for how plant-based foods can use dairy terms. And this is an issue that's also been a huge sticking point for decades, particularly the last five or six years, Lori. We've, We've seen all manner of products. It started with soy back, you know, 25, 30 years ago. And we've seen rice and and almond, almond's most popular alternative or fake milk, um, but, and now oats, right? A lot of different food products, very commonly available. And who knows what it'll be six months from now or, or six years from now. It tends to be a cycle. <clears throat> the irony is that if you total up all of those plant-based sales, regardless of the source, nuts, seeds, weeds, hemp milk is a thing too, <laughs> you know their sales are declining the last couple of years. So they were a hot ticket maybe five years ago. And it seems like we've hit peak plant for plant-based dairy products, and at least in terms of the fluid form, the, the uh, imitation milks, those are now declining in consumption. But we also see it, you know, there's plant-based yogurts and cheeses and ice creams, you know, you name it. So the reason this is an issue, though, is that if the FDA liberalizes or waters down, essentially, the ability of uh, plant foods, to use dairy terms, then it's going to create additional consumer confusion. And it's not just a fight over the name, it's a fight over the battle to make certain that our families and our children in particular have proper nutrition. Why are the plant-based companies doing this? Well, the reason is very obvious, because milk has a very positive nutrition halo. It's it's packed with protein, uh, vitamins and minerals, 13 essential nutrients. And the plant foods, some of them have some of that stuff. Very few of them have all 13 of those nutrients, and yet the, the, reason, the reason they want to use the term milk is because, hey, if it's milk, it's got to be nutritious, right, whether it's made from almonds or oats or soy or whatever the case may be. So that's why this is a nutrition uh, fight at a time when the government's looking at the dietary guidelines and trying to make certain that people get more things like calcium and vitamin D. Milk's a great source of those if it's real milk. If it's a plant-based milk, well, then who knows? So that's why we're looking at this very carefully. If the FDA comes out here and says you can use the term milk if it's associated with something like soy or rice, well, we're going to have real issues with that, and we'll look at what our options are for responding because we think that that's heading in the wrong direction. And again, it's sending the wrong signal to consumers that if you slap milk on a product in your grocer's uh, dairy case, that it is equivalent in any way to the real thing.
1: In general, how are dairy prices? How is supply and demand for the dairy industry right now?
0: Yeah, certainly not nearly as good as things were a year ago or six months ago. So we're looking at a year where things aren't going to be bad at this point. Uh, The good news is that uh, input costs have retreated to a large extent. I mean, corn's not what it was two or three years ago, but it's not what it was a year ago. So if you're feeding corn, soybeans, hay, key feed ingredients for dairy cattle, it's not quite as bad, and it's still elevated, though. I mean, you still see evidence of inflation. We know that obviously gas, diesel, fertilizer aren't as high as they were six months ago, but they're still somewhat elevated. So the cost of making milk is still elevated, and at the same time, the price of milk that farmers get is certainly going to be several dollars per hundredweight less. So we're looking at margins that are going to be somewhat compressed here as we start the spring flush season when we start seeing a lot more milk production come off of farms. So, It'll be a more challenging year. Margins won't be what they were last year. And even last year, depending on if you lock in your feed costs, you may have had a really great year or kind of a middling year. And this year is starting out being kind of a middling year mediocre year, and hopefully it won't get any worse. So a lot depends, I think, Laurie, on what's going to happen with inflation overall in the economy, not just in food. And also, are we going to see a recession? A lot of economists six months ago said, by no means are we going to avoid a recession with the Federal Reserve raising these interest rates. We're going to definitely see an economy-wide recession as we get into 2023. Well, there's not really a lot of evidence of that yet. Certainly interest rates are still high, cost of money is high but unemployment rate's very, very low. A lot of people have jobs, a lot of people making money to spend. So we haven't seen the recession yet. And that will hopefully mean that if we avoid a recession or at least a deep recession, there won't be a a collapse in milk prices, because that's the main thing that we'd be really concerned with is both if meat and beef as well as milk were to collapse and get a lot Uh, Then we'd be looking at a very, very difficult situation.
1: One other question I have for you here. Any talk right now in Washington, D.C. on picking Uh back up on the Workforce Modernization Act or something similar? Mm.
0: Yes, this is the ability to pass a law that would give dairy farmers the ability to make use of the H-2A visa program, something that Senator Bennett in Colorado had worked on. Uh, We were hoping to get some momentum in the Senate last year, and it just didn't happen. The bill had passed the House two years ago, but it didn't pass the Senate in 2022. Uh, We want to be optimistic. Certainly we're going to work with Senator Bennett and other lawmakers in both House and the Senate, uh, in both parties, because I think there's a widespread recognition, Lori, that whether you're talking about uh, dairy, the meatpacking industry, horticulture, if you don't have access to foreign-born workers, it is just very, very difficult to maintain. a a productive workforce. Whether or not we can get a bill that will pass a Democratic Senate as well as a Republican House and be signed by the Biden White House, that's the open question. A lot of people had hopes two years ago we were going to get this done and it didn't happen. Uh, It now becomes much more challenging because you've got to get something that would be acceptable to a House and the Senate that are opposite ends politically. So that's the issue that we face right now. We're going to continue working on it as we can for more than a decade now. Um, But I think we'll have to see the stars and the the moon align politically for that to happen And right now.
1: Anything else to mention today?
0: No, I think that covers it for now, Laurie.
1: We'll wrap it up on that. Chris Galen, Senior Vice President for Membership Services and Strategic Initiatives with the National Milk Producers Federation.
0: Thanks for tuning in to this edition of the Ag Queen podcast with your host, Lori Boyer.